Hello and welcome to episode four of the Long Story Short podcast. My guest today is Justin Caffrey. Justin is a certified health and wellness coach and is one of Europe's leading minds in resilience, leadership, business strategy, radical transparency, psychological safety, and practical neuroscience. He holds a master's in psychological interventions using neuroscience and mindfulness, and is one of the few Westerners to have endured a week-long training with monks in the remote mountains of Northern Japan. On today's podcast, Justin shares with us his advice on leaning in to facing life's challenges, as well as how his highly driven personality and successful career was a way for him to avoid grieving the loss of his son Joshua for many years. This eventually led to him having a panic attack during a business meeting, which was the moment Justin decided to take action by asking for help with his mental health. So despite this being a very tragic topic, Justin describes his son's death as somewhat of a blessing, as this made him realise the importance of slowing down and living in the present moment. Justin's story is really inspiring, and I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did chatting. Hi, Justin, how are you? And welcome to the Long Story Short podcast. Hi, Vicky. Thanks. I'm, I'm good. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks for having me on your podcast. So, Justin, I came across you a couple of months ago on Instagram and I had listened to a couple of podcasts that you had previously spoken on. And I think your story is just fascinating. You have definitely had um, some experiences in your life that not many people would experience. Um, Would you just mind starting us off with kind of, I suppose, telling the listeners um, who you are, what you do um, and a little bit about your your life and your your past. Sure, thanks. Um, yeah, so uh, what do I do now? Um, I'm, I predominantly work in, in coaching. So I work with uh, leadership teams and, and individuals, um, both in terms of those who are actively kind of running businesses, so senior leadership teams and C-suites. Um, and then I also coach people like me who've maybe sold businesses or come to a point in their life where they're trying to think, well, what's next? Um, so that's kind of the majority of my focus. Um, but I also spend a lot of time sharing a lot of content around mental health. So um, a lot of what we talk about today, I, I share a huge amount of content on um, YouTube where I put a video up every week, particularly focusing on how we can um, deal with the the neuroscience and the psychology in order to to help and improve some of the challenges that you know most people are facing today with anxiety and depression um and i suppose that came out of my experiences with it um so i grew up in a in a home that um was shrouded in mental health issues my my father when i was younger was um uh, depressed, uh, suffered from serious anxiety, um, suicidal attempts, and um, that really framed life for me as a as a young person. I'm very much a, a life that I didn't want to end up in, um, and I also, I suppose, built a persona of strength out of seeing my father because I didn't want to be you know weak as well how i saw it as a teenager um and it was something that i was always desperate to stay away from and that mindset galvanized me in many ways to 
to build a very successful career. Because um, I come from relatively humble backgrounds. I mean, I went to primary school in, in Ballymun in North County, Dublin, and I went to secondary school in a Christian brother school in Whitehall. Um, we didn't have money when I was growing up. Um, it was a pretty kind of rough and tumble existence um, in, in, in boys' schools in North Dublin in, in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and then when I was 19, I ended up um, going to London. Um, I worked in banking. It's all kind of somewhat serendipitous the way it all worked. Um, but, you know, this kid from a rougher part of town suddenly ended up um, in the city of London and uh, a career and, and, and business life was built from there. So it was a bit of, <laughs> bit of a wild ride how it ever ended up there. But, but now I'm back and I'm, I'm living in Greystones in, in Ireland again many years later what was it like I suppose did you know when you were growing up that your father suffered with his mental health yeah great question um I didn't really notice it to be honest when I was growing up I knew I knew he wasn't right um but I didn't really know what it was and of course it wasn't discussed so my my mother was trying to hide it from me um it's kind of like trying to hide an elephant in a three-bed semi in North Dublin, right? It's uh, it's not really possible. It is there. You're not going to miss it. Um, and um, but but it was only when I when I left home. I left home when I was 19. And I went to London, and she actually gave me a book on depression as I was packing my stuff up to leave. And she went, "Oh, you should read this." And I remember thinking, "Hmm, okay, well, yeah, that's confirmed what I think." Um, so. Uh, yeah, it was just like my my father took early retirement when I was thirteen. Um, he worked in the civil service and uh, just just couldn't cope really with anything. Um, and then he was at home from from thirteen to nineteen, and you know most of that time he would be in bed. Um, I remember at one stage when I was sixteen, he was in a car accident, and he didn't speak for about seven or eight months. So I was in this house with this man who didn't even speak. Um, and and I, I developed a good enough relationship with my dad when I was about 17. And we had a good couple of years. And then he found it quite difficult when I left um, because he felt that we'd kind of, we gelled. Um, and we did to a degree. But for me, to be honest, you know, I I didn't have a lot of closeness with my parents during my teenage years so I was I was when I look back now I recognize that I left at 19 to go to London because I wanted to get away from family and that environment and and I wanted to find find me in the midst of of unexplained reality growing up um and um not not that I hold any any grievance against my parents my father died two years ago my mother's still alive um but it was like you said there, Vicky, I think it's, we live on a small island and it's good to get away and to experience our cultures. Um, and I went to London in 1994 and Dublin was like a, a backwater in 1994. It's not like Dublin today. And London was this mega city. So I was just having the best fun ever when I left. So no regrets. But um, yeah, I didn't really see it at the time. And I probably learned more about it as I got older. And and then, you know, look, as you know, now, as you're, you're heading into your mid twenties, you, you kind of, you see things differently and more clearly, and you reflect more on, 
on your childhood as you get older. So, you know, I think my parents come from really humble backgrounds. They were, they grew up in, in, in near kind of tenement environments in Dorset Street. They, you know, they, they both, my mother was only educated to primary school. My father, maybe he did the equivalent of the junior cert. I don't think he did actually I think he might've left before then. So they did their best. Yeah. It was a parent. Wow. That is, that's so interesting. And when, because I, I can really relate to that feeling of you're in a certain environment that you want to escape from. And mine wasn't necessarily my, my family environment, but it was my friend circle, my school life in Dublin that had me feeling I want to get out of here and I want to experience something different. Um, where do you think that comes from with when maybe you're young or I even know I do it still to this day. It's not wanting to deal with what's in front of you and using other things as an escapism, um, whether it's, you know, alcohol or getting out of the country or in, in my scenario, it was, you know, there were certain things going on in my life as a teenager that I turned to exercise and, you know, restricting my food to a, a, a high extent. Where does that kind of come from? Do you think if there is an, an answer? <laughs> well, no, I, and, and I really believe there is. I mean, it's, it's something that I've studied extensively in the last kind of five or six years is the understanding of, of the neuroscience, because I, I kind of wanted to look back and think, you know, how healthy was my decision to go to London? Um, and, and even when you say that now, when you ask that question, kind of feel a little bit triggered by it so i know it's definitely it's definitely accurate it's that idea that it was a behavior to escape and and the the challenge with that is that whenever you start to use any behavior to escape which which ultimately from from a neuroscience perspective you're using you're moving your nervous system into the sympathetic state which is fight and flight so you're choosing flight and you want to move away if i'm somewhere else i'll feel happier um and that definitely was part of my thinking at the time and and in the in the if i'm somewhere else i'll be happier approach um that theme continued on because for me then i i i I became a workaholic um i worked in in finance in london um, I had a very successful career in my like early twenties. I was making a huge amount of money. By the time I was twenty-four, I was running, set up and run a business with with business partner of mine. And within about four or five years, we were employing a couple of hundred people and running various companies and complex markets. And I just immersed myself in work. Um probably peppered with a bit of medicating through alcohol, which you can do really nicely um, when you're buying expensive wines, because you can cover up the fact that, you know, I'm not, I'm not drinking a two liter uh, of cider in the park. Um, I'm I'm drinking, you know, a nice, a nice bottle of Barolo. So nobody, nobody will bat an eyelid. Um, So I think that the thing that you have to be aware of is that once you start this process, your nervous system, locks into it being a behavior and there are other decisions in my life where i ran from the situation because i'd started to program my nervous system that flight 
was my preferred mechanism rather than fight, which is like lean into it and deal with the problem. And I think then you, yeah. you go down that road of having that coping mechanism, um, which, you know, from, from what you said, it sounds quite similar, you know, whether it's food or, or exercise, you know, or, or, or running or, you know, even, you know, cold water swimming is something that I've done a lot of in Greystones. And I see a lot of people who need to cold water swim every day. When you have to, when you feel like you have to do something every single day, there's generally a layer that needs to be peeled back to go, well, why and what am I not dealing with that needs my attention? It's not to say that these things aren't really good, but substituting one behavior with another is beneficial. Like if you, if you move from say, you know, alcohol to become an ultra athlete, that's not a bad trade-off. But if you are just addicted to being an ultra athlete, that will still have very disruptive and destructive impacts on your personal relationships and your life in general. So you always have to find that balance of, you know, what is it like if I just actually find the capacity to sit with the pain that I'm trying to run away from? And if I really lean into that pain, where will that get me? And that's that's an interesting space to get to, which is not fight or flight. It's kind of like leaning in, dealing with the issues. It's very hard to do, mm. isn't it? Mm. Incredibly hard yeah. to do. Yeah, and I definitely can relate to that. I will take up a million and one tasks other than sitting with my thoughts and asking myself, what am I feeling? And, you know, about certain scenarios, just um, what comes to mind is my parents separated when I was 14 and I'm an only child. And I remember it was in like think my friends in school were asking me are you okay like are you not really upset I don't think I cried once when my parents separated and that's really weird but I I, in that moment in time I remember feeling absolutely fine and I'm very lucky today my parents the three of us get on incredibly well we spend every Christmas day together we go out for dinners together like I'm very lucky with how the separation was but I still don't think I dealt with that set their separation which looking back on now I know it did affect me but I put up this like wall of I'm fine it doesn't doesn't affect me but then at the same time I think back and again it was a blur for about two years but I was in a cycle of you know this negative self-talk I did at one stage self-harm I like there was so much going on that I just blanked out for about three or four years until like that I ended up with an eating disorder and ended up in hospital when I had to like unravel all of these things and I'm not saying it's my parents separation that caused that but there was certain things that I just did not deal with in the moment that I felt crept up on me later on how did you start working on your mindset and I suppose how important is mindset when it comes to being in a high you know uh, what's the word like high uh, output job where you're working nonstop? Yeah, um, I think I think it's really important. Um, so if you're like if you're in this kind of high performance environment, it's it is really important. Um, and I suppose, like from from a client perspective, the people that I work with will often you know 
a two or three percent shift has a very significant impact on on their outcome, whether it's CEO of of, a, of an organization or a professional sports person. So making sure that their their capacity to be clear, present, and focused is going to be the difference between you know the 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 upper echelons of success and fighting away from from mediocrity so it can be really important at that level um for me i mean tragically look you know in in when i was in my 20s especially in london culture was around um alcohol um it was work hard play hard um you know i was schooled in 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 finance in the 90s um and and you just kept going until you burnt out um, but I had no real, I had no real idea about that. I mean, I used to work to the point where I just needed to take a week off and I would, I would, I would call, um, an agent that I used to deal with and just get them to get me into, you know, a five-star resort somewhere in the world that was away from everybody. So I could just lie down for a week. Um, and that would happen once a year. And then I'd be like, okay, right, fine. Get back in it again. So there was certainly no um mind or body or conscious um thoughts around well-being um and it was only um later on in life when i started to to come to terms with that and that was you know like most things it takes events in your life to hit you with some element of tragedy um but if i reflect back now i think i was unwell i mean i wasn't i was probably overly stressed but not conscious of it. Um, I had no time for myself or anything else. I was completely focused on work. Um, and it was after I'd met my wife and we had our our second child. When we tried to have our second child, my wife had four miscarriages. And if I look back now on that, I reflect on that too and realize how... I wasn't really aware of how tough that was for her because I was so immersed in work. Um, and our second child was born um, while we were on um, a vacation in, in Spain and um, born prematurely at 26 weeks. And we, we were stuck in Spain for a year because he was in neonatal intensive care for, for most of that time. And he was tube fed and oxygen dependent. So our whole lives went on hold. And I just sold a business a year earlier. So at that point, we think, oh, life is great. Um, everything's going according to plan. Um, and I had that year where we were so focused on all of us as a family, which was very mindful and beautiful. Um, and then we thought we'd get Joshua out of Spain, but he died before his first birthday. And I didn't grieve his death. I kind of spoke about his death at the time. Um, and I was there. I watched him die in his final moments. But quickly, I moved back to working again, like within weeks of his death. Um, and then that really unraveled. About two and a half years later, I had a panic attack, which I had no idea what that was in a, in a, in a, in a really important meeting. Um, and that's when I really got exposed to the whole idea of mental health and what it's all about and why it's important for our well-being but our performance so i think sometimes it takes a really big 
punch in the nose to get you to wake up and think about yourself because we're always too busy. I think that's probably a good place to put a full stop. We're always too busy. We have to think about ourselves. Right. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, I mean, it's, I'm so sorry um, for, for your loss. That's shocking, really. And I suppose there's no um, handbook of how to grieve. And I have a couple of friends that have lost parents um, and lost siblings and everybody grieves differently. Um, and it's a, it's like, I can't even imagine. Um, and like that, it's, I suppose... I have a one um, person comes to mind in particular who very much didn't want to even pay attention to her grievances. And that was maybe four or five years ago and still to this day has never really talked to a friend or anybody and, and acknowledged the fact. And I suppose when it comes to that moment, you had the panic attack. Did, like you said, was that that moment where you said, I need to get help or I need to do something or was it a I've no clue what just happened there I'm just going to go back to my normal you know driven lifestyle or where where was the next step after that yeah great question uh, so I had a panic attack in a meeting and um I actually thought maybe I didn't know what panic attacks were at this stage um and uh, and, and I would have thought mm, this just for weak people who have something wrong with them, right? So it was like a proper um, moment of of realization because you also, I think, when you're when you're that kind of alpha personality, you also believe that you're 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 not vulnerable um, and you're able to to outdo and outlast everything. So I thought I'm having a heart attack or a stroke in the meeting, and then I was checking it, and I could feel like my left side was numb. My heart felt like it was going to pop out of my mouth and my periphery vision had completely failed. So every time somebody spoke, there was a, quite a few people at my boardroom table. I would have to turn my head to get eye contact to to acknowledge that they were talking because I had no, it's like having uh, blinkers on as a horse. Um, and it lasted about 20 minutes and I stayed in the meeting and concluded the meeting and never told anybody it was actually happening to me. Although I was gray and, and probably a bit sweaty looking and whatever else. Um, but I didn't, I didn't do anything about it. And I thought when I get out of here, I'll go to the hospital and see what this is. Cause they can probably run some kind of EKG and tell me if I had a heart attack, mm. um, which goes to show how completely mental, um, my thought processes were. Um, and I left that meeting and instead of going to the hospital on the way to the hospital, I diverted the taxi and went, went to my hotel cause my office was in a different country. And, um, uh, I just went and had a drink. Um, and, and I thought, well, I feel better now. It's okay. But it was when I came back from that trip abroad, um, and I came home, my wife said to me, you know, uh, I, t I told her what happened and she just said, look, it's time to get a grip. You know, you're, you're, you're becoming more distracted. Um, she said, you know, in the last couple of weeks, you stopped petting your do our dogs. Um, we had two golden retrievers um, who I love dearly, but, but I realized I had no more energy left. Um, 
and I wasn't giving them attention. I was still giving attention to Beatrice and to Luca, but I, I was really uh, liberally um, giving them attention and everything else was getting cut off. Um, so uh, that was that moment when I thought, okay, I need to make some changes here. Um, and, uh, and then I realized I needed to go into therapy and get some help. Um, so that was, that was quite a big change. Actually, one of those dogs mm. just died four days ago. Sanchez. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's right. I have a golden retriever and they are just They're the, the best. best. Yeah. He was 12. He had a great life. We, we, we literally got him after we moved back to Ireland. Um, after Joshua died, we, we moved to Ireland from, from London and, um, and we got him then. So he had a great life, but uh, yeah, he died um, four so days ago. So sorry. That's okay. They, they are the best. Um, we are we are dog obsessed. So I know I know the feeling, and I've had two dogs previously before that have passed, and it's it's a hard a hard time. It is, but it's good. But, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's a good way to help, especially you know kids to deal with grief and understand you know the yeah. fragility of life. So um, yeah, definitely. I just yeah, I don't think there's a a love quite like it. Somebody who when you walk in the door is just always happy to see you. <laughs> Always yeah, happy to exactly. see you. It's the best, it's yeah. the best experience ever. Um, it so, uh, so yeah, yeah no, sorry, but answer, in answer to the question, that was that was when I when I, I realized I needed to get help, and I went into therapy, um, and I found a therapist who, um, for me, what was very important was not to be medicated, and I'm not for one second um, in any way saying that medication is not the right idea, but I had been stigmatized in my own head by my father. Um, you know, he had electric, electric shock treatment. He had every medication under the sun. And by the time he died, he was, you know, you could wheel, you could wheel around uh, his, his medication after him. So I wanted to try and find a way to deal with anxiety and depression because I definitely had both. And, and ultimately, I had PTSD because I hadn't dealt with the, the trauma of watching my son die. Um, and I wanted to find a way of doing that um, by coming to terms with me and how I was feeling fully present to the experience because I knew I was abusing alcohol at this stage. So I just thought, do I want to try and stop drinking and then just get medicated? Am I then really dealing with my trauma? Um, and that's not necessarily the right approach for anybody who's listening either. I mean, I went on to study psychology and, and neuroscience sometimes medication is the right intervention to give you the space to be able to try and then find the capacity to heal but my mindset at the time was i want to try and do this and 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 heal i did end up being medicated for three months because when i started in therapy i'd hit a wall and i was very likely to commit suicide that's how how dark things became for me very quickly i mean my mental health unraveled and I think, again, I come across this a lot when I'm talking to people in very senior roles, huge levels of responsibility where, they, where you're busy, busy, busy and stuff is going on. And then all of a sudden there's a window where you have time. And for me, I ended up with flu, stuck in a hotel in a foreign country. And I had time to kind of contemplate. And all of a sudden, my mental health arrived like a freight train. So you you um, can unravel quite quickly. 
And I went from the appearance of being healthy, but still, as I would say, a workaholic, so not necessarily fully healthy. Um, and probably, if I'm honest, medicating myself with alcohol to, you know, a panic attack and then, you know, incredibly obsessive negative thoughts in four months. It was that quick. Um, and I think that's something people don't realize who have never either suffered themselves with a mental illness or have been around somebody that has, it can literally happen so fast. I mean, I remember uh, someone very close to me um, suffers with an eating disorder. And I remember before I did, I was, you know, saying, why doesn't, why don't they do something? Like, why don't they just go get help? Why don't they just, just eat? Why don't they, you know, do all this? Less than six months later, I was in the same scenario. And it's, it's a really, that was a huge learning curve for me that it's like, you are never, it's, it's like, I suppose any other illness, we're never safe from it. Um, and people can often think, oh, you know, I'll never struggle with alcohol or I'll never struggle with food. And it's, you, you never know. Um, and it can happen just so fast. So, yeah. Yeah, it really can. And I think it also goes back to, to what we talked about, you know, this the, the fight and flight thing. Um, I often think it's like when you don't deal with the problems as and when they're happening, they, they just become kind of compounded and then they're, they're built up. So I often think it's like we all have like the old wedding um, cars that you'd see in the old movies where they have the tin cans tied to the back of the wedding car. All of our problems that we're not dealing with are like tin cans tied behind us. And we're constantly trying to move. We can hear them rattling behind us. and We kind of know they're there. But we don't really want to turn around and deal with them. And we then spend our lives trying to get away from stuff. And as you're trying to get away from things, like if I think about not dealing with, with Joshua's death, like I, I watched him take his last breath in, in my wife's arms. Um, and I felt guilt, which you always do as a parent because you, you couldn't save your child. Um, I had then issues around um, not, not fully coming to terms with who I was as a teenager and the challenges of mental health in my house. And my, my nephew died when he was 18 months old when I was 24. I hadn't dealt with that. Um, and by not dealing with things, it's, it's almost like you're kind of like leaning back from the problem and it's just keeps, it just keeps kind of slapping you in the face, but not in a kind of a bad way, in a kind of like a, an annoying mosquito or fly just kind of slapping you little bits in the face. It's really quite irritating, but not enough to kind of bowl you over. And then we do things to deal with this annoyance. So we drink, we work, we eat, we do drugs, we have sex, we use pornography, we gamble. So we use all these things because this constant kind of like slapping in the face is there. And what I learned through my experience is if you do the opposite and lean right into your problem and actually get punched in the nose like 10 or 15 times heavily while you deal with your problem and really come to terms with it, it's a painful few weeks or a couple of months, but then the annoying slapping in the face goes, if that yeah. makes sense. That makes 
complete sense. It's a it's a short term, really difficult process, but it's a long term relief. Hundred percent. So it's yeah. like okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna lean into my pain. I'm gonna deal with it when it's here, and I'm going to and I'm gonna come out the other side. And and from from a like from a post traumatic environment that requires you to go right back into those painful moments requires you to revisit it and for me it was it was revisiting and seeing Joshua's death over and over again in my mind working on it and then noticing oh okay here's an interesting thing every time i get close to that pain it feels like it's still happening now in my body so i'll feel tense in my body when i think about it or i felt tense when i would think about it so i feel uncomfortable in my stomach or tightness in my jaw as if it's still happening and what i've discovered over the last 10 years of of being immersed in this whole world is that the nervous system is really primal and incredibly dumb and when it gets into a traumatic environment and it moves you into fight and flight when you exit it every time you go back to it again even if you just think about it your nervous system thinks it's still happening so you feel that tension, you feel that tightness, you know, there's that like, as you talk about it, you'll gulp. But we can actually train our nervous systems to notice it's not here anymore. And and now I can see that Joshua is dead. And And using that language is really important too, because we will often say, you know, my son has passed away or you know, he's, he's in a better place, but we need to get our neurological systems and our biological systems lined up to know what is real and what is not here anymore. And as much as I wish Joshua wasn't dead, um, I do actually think of his life and death now as one of the best things that ever happened to me because I think I think I would have been divorced. Um, I don't think I would have been a good father to to Joshua's older brother, um, who who I think I've been a great father to, on the back of his brother's death, um, and I've been a good husband on the back of his death, um, and it allowed me to change my life and and devote it to to helping and working with people, which is far more enjoyable than working in the financial markets and the capital markets. Um, so I, I see his death as as a real blessing, um, and um, uh, you know, a, a great moment of learning for me. Yeah, while I'm not religious, I definitely think life in life there is a plan, and while things might seem in the moment like why is this happening happening to me, um, I think it will always there is a plan put in place for, for everybody that's there to teach us things. And we can either choose to, I suppose, take it as this why me scenario or this, okay, this has happened. What am I going to do or what action am I going to take as a result of this? Um, and again, easier said than done, but it's, and it can take years. Yeah. To, to yeah. And even if it does take years, well, you know, that's okay. Um, it's it's about un- uncovering that idea and then uncovering you. So I think we're in this world where we're, we're all trying to pursue, you know, the best version of me or the 2.0 or whatever else. 
I think for most of us, we don't really know who we are. So what I learned was what's it like to just find out who I am and what I'm really about and, and lean into that. Um, in, in, in Zed, in, there's a saying in Zen Buddhism where they say that, that in the end, every snowflake lands exactly where it's supposed to. Um, so, so don't overthink it because you're going to land where you're supposed to. Life is going to happen and things will go wrong. And, and that's okay too, because we, we learn and evolve. Um, like my, when, when my son died, my, my wife, he died with us at home because we'd taken him out of hospital because he, he was dying. So we had him in our palliative care for the last few weeks. And, um, when he died, she spent the next two hours with him. Um, cause I had to bring our, our, our other son, um, down to the beach with my parents to, so we could get the funeral directors to come to the house. But she cleaned his body, prepared his body, connected so deeply to, you know, her dead child. Um, and I came back and, and saw her doing this, and it was the most primal thing I've ever seen. And it made me research a few years ago about the whole idea of funeral directors and, and, and death. And it's only like since the American Civil War that we've actually outsourced um, uh, dead people to a third party. Prior to that, we we took care of them ourselves. We, we you know, we, we we buried them ourselves. We mourned them at home. We cleaned the bodies. Um, and actually, traditionally, um, women held that role in most Western societies where they would always um, clean and prepare the bodies. And when I seen this with 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 my wife Beatrice, it was like she knew how to do this it was it's like deep within our genetic makeup there's an understanding of how to how to properly grieve um and uh when we came to ireland we got that our first dog sanchez who just died the other day and she spent six months in the mountains with him walking and between uh washing and preparing joshua's body after he died and spending time in nature and walking she never went into therapy and she'll she can speak openly and happily about his life and his death. And I didn't go into therapy at that stage and I didn't speak about it. And I kind of spoke about it in like, well, you know, it's just time to man up and push on. Um, and, and that, that, that all unraveled. Um, so it's really, she really demonstrates in the best way possible, the power of just leaning into the difficulty that's right in front of you, because if you deal with it in the moment, it isn't going to be one of those tin cans that you're pulling behind you. That's, yeah, that's fascinating. Oh, my God. Acknowledging what's gone on and taking action on it rather than pushing things under the rug um, and trying to, like like you said, man up um, and, and move on. It, it tends to not work. No, and I think, like, for everything... You know, when I'm working with leaderships or leadership teams, it's all about, you know, lean into the difficult conversations, you know, sit down and have all that. I, I do a lot of work around psychological safety and radical transparency, which is just all about just be open and honest with everybody. If it's good, talk about it. If it's bad, talk about it. Um, but, but through open and honest dialogue, there is only an opportunity for action. Through dishonest dialogue, 
there is huge amounts of opportunity for inaction and malaise and and then things just get worse. So under the rug is, you know, it's shoving a dead body under a rug. Everybody fall, come up, walks into the room and falls over it all the time. And eventually we have to go, let's deal with this problem and lift the rug, right? Um, but we're... We're kind of conditioned at this stage to try and avoid and put it off. Um, But I think it's within that difficulty is growth. And within that growth is freedom. And that's where everything really changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think when you put it like that, it, it makes such a difference. Like even my mindset over the past three or four years, I was that person that was like, why me? Like, why does this happen to me? I think when we try, and I don't know, maybe you can give some advice or some tips or suggestions on this, but how to get out of that why me mindset and moving towards that, look, I have a challenge in front of me. There's a reason. I, I'm sure you've read uh, The Obstacle is the Way. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and I actually probably need to read that again. I read that probably about five years ago but that for me was a huge like okay mindset change of if I'm struggling with something if there's something in my way right now there's a reason for it and it's going to make me stronger and I often think this you know when a a client comes to me and says oh I'm leaving and I I just go like was it me like why is this happening to me why am I not the most successful gym owner in the country like at this point in time and I suppose my dad is really good at this positive mindset talk and he's worked a lot in like leadership and, and all of that. And he says like, you know, this is preparing you for when five clients leave you in a row, you know, there's always, but I think it's, you have to look at it as that, as opposed to, Oh, well then now I'm just not, you know, I'm just going to let this get on top of me and stress me out and really get in on me. Yeah. I think, uh it's 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 so it's so true and and your dad is 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 absolutely correct that every that every small cut should just be the preparation for the big one because things will inevitably go wrong and and ultimately you know i I really like the expression that you know nobody's coming to save you right and 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 the more that people save you the less immersed you are in your own reality so as you face yeah. into your own challenges and own them, you you move into a sense of self-determination. And and within self-determination, then you suddenly do realize that, you know, the obstacle is the way. And and um, you know, although that's that's very much a kind of a stoic sense of 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 a behavior, um, the whole principle of that comes from from Taoism. Um and and in Taoism, they use the expression Wu Wei, which is for Chinese translated to the best way to be kind of flow state, which, which you know, you would know an awful lot of Vicky from sport, that when we get into flow state, we perform at this level where there's no thinking anymore. And, you know, professional people who who build and run successful careers I built four companies and, and, and ran them all at, at, at um, CEO level. My best decisions were being made when I didn't have to think. I just acted out of my instinct. And 
part of that instinct is to just notice that things are getting in the way and that's okay. And that's never going to stop. Like there's no, you know, just because I've come to terms with, with Joshua's death, these things don't stop. Everything still happens. I think what's interesting, my, my dog died four days ago. Five years ago, he, he got knocked down and he nearly died. And I felt really traumatized by that. And four days ago, he died. And I've spent, you know, eight or nine years studying with, with samurai masters in Japan, studying neuroscience in, 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 in Western universities. Um, but the biggest thing for me is, is that sense of slowing down and paying attention, using mindfulness, meditation, uh, more stoic practices, which brought me immense peace when, when Sanchez died. It's like, okay, I would like him to be alive, but he's died and, and I'm at peace with that. Um, and I was very much, uh, immersed within his death and we were we you know we 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 took care of his dead body again and we did exactly what Beatrice did with with Joshua 12 years ago so as a family we could grieve and have time with him um so I think uh, the the obstacles are always there and for anybody who's struggling and and thinking of a way to start then Finding some capacity to manage what's going on with you is critical. And the first part to to that step is talking about it to anybody. You know, therapy, great, but start off with, you know, a friend, a relative, um, just starting to communicate because once it starts to come out it's already easier then there are you know fantastic tools and tricks and you know meditation for me is a very strong one but people who are struggling with high levels of anxiety meditation is actually not really the best place to go because it can it can almost be counterproductive um mm. that you start to release too much too quickly um as is you know the wim hof breathing technique can be challenging because you know, you're upregulating your nervous system and that can mean that people can, can all of a sudden unravel quite quickly. Um, so learning some breathing techniques, some simple breathing techniques and starting to speak is such a beautiful entry point to starting to heal. Brilliant. Brilliant. I think that's, I mean, I could chat to you all day, <laughs> but I think that's a really great note to kind of finish up on and, I know for a fact so many people are going to find this really, really interesting and inspiring as well. Um, so no, you've you've had a, a incredible, interesting um, life, and I fair play to you for just facing it head on and as you said, leaning into it. It's not easy. Um, so thank you so much for all of that great um, information and just advice and help. Um, it's it's really it's really I find it so interesting like I said I could talk to you forever um I just for the end of the podcast though I do have three rapid fire questions um that I've asked every single one of my guests so number one what is your favorite breakfast favorite breakfast is um oats with 
berries, fruits, nuts, and seeds. Great for the microbiome. So important. Yes, great choice. Uh, question number two, favorite music artist? <sighs> That's a tough one. Um, I would say it's probably uh, Pearl Jam. Great. And your favorite book? I'm sure you've read a lot of books. <laughs> wow. Okay, that's really hard. Um, I think for anybody who would like to understand a little bit of what we spoke about today, there is a fantastic book called The Buddha's Brain. And it's a conversation between a neuroscientist and a Buddhist philosopher um, looking at, because Buddhist psychology is two and a half thousand years old. Um, and it's a really beautiful insight into the neuroscience of behavior. Um, so anybody who'd like to improve, whether it's their own mental health or their performance, you will get something from there. And it's, and it's easy to consume. So it's, it's, a, it's a great read. Brilliant. I definitely will take that down and have a read. Thank you so much. And, and lastly... Just, I'm just going to say that if anybody does want to um, access some of the things that I spoke about, some of the breathing techniques, you, you can find, um, if you go onto my, if you just go onto YouTube and type in Justin Caffrey and nasal breathing, um, you'll find some really simple techniques to help you just start managing the regulation of your, of your brain, uh, just for anybody who's interested. Amazing. Yeah, that and that kind of aligns with my last question. Where can people find you, whether it's social media, website, uh, like you said, YouTube, just there and um, anywhere else? Yeah, you... sure. Um, yeah. So you can find me. My, my website is justincaffrey.com um, and you can find me on Instagram, justin.caffrey and on LinkedIn and YouTube. And the great thing about having a name like Justin Caffrey is if you just type it into Google, you'll find me anyway. Um, so it's it's uh, it's it's helpful. So uh, yeah, but uh, but yeah, please access the free. There's tons of free stuff on my YouTube channel to help people who can't afford to access some of these services. Um, and there's a great community on there. Um, so it's been really nice to see people benefit quickly by just implementing some small changes in their day. Amazing. Listen, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and yeah, that was brilliant. Thanks, Vicky. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Justin. This was an episode where I felt so many emotions throughout, yet I was left feeling upbeat and hopeful at the end. If you're like me and found Justin's story interesting, I would love for you to share it with your friends, family, or anyone else you think might find it useful, as this really helps in me growing the podcast. For more info, make sure to follow me on Instagram at Vicky Cornick, as well as my gym page at victory underscore fitness underscore IE. This is where you can also check out our 28-day trial that we run for half price. And lastly, if you're wanting to get updates for future episodes, which include some incredible guests, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. See you next time.